Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Families who are experiencing homelessness can go unnoticed. They're away from public view, in cars, couch hopping, shelters, or low-budget motels. The stresses for parents and children compound and become unbearable. It often takes a long time for any sort of relief. The process to get temporary and permanent housing is arduous and grinding. My next guests know this reality all too well. They, along with others, have come together to place 100 families into housing in 100 days. How did they get it done? And what was the process like? Here to answer those questions is Drew Freeman, the CEO of Safe Haven, and Rod DeVore, director of Two Gen Initiatives at the United Way of Nashville. Drew, Rod, thanks for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. Welcome. Absolutely. Glad to be thanks here. So, first of all, congratulations to both of you and everybody involved. You, you've really un- undertaken what is known as an impossible mission. I'd like to hear from both of you. Rod, you first. How are you reflecting on what you all just accomplished? Yeah, it's been interesting to think about how to navigate this complex problem around family homelessness and to think about the network of agencies that had to rally around this commitment to housing 100 families in 100 days and to see them think critically about what do we need to do to contribute to the success that we're trying to achieve Mm. Um, and then um, all really lending their own gifts, abilities, their resources as agencies towards this goal. That's been one of the things that I've been reflecting on. We talk about systems change a lot, and it's often ambiguous, but we say systems are sets of relationships. Mm. And to transform systems, we have to transform the way people relate to one another. Well, that's part of this shift that I've been reflecting on. It's people relating to each other differently, agencies relating to each other differently. And then centering families in the process, which right. I think is a very important piece. Drew, what are your reflections? Yeah, I think much of what Rod said, but also just the families that we were able to serve. You know, we're talking about this is a season where people think about being home for the holidays. Um, and just for over 100 families, we've made that possible and mm-hmm. made that song a reality for them. So I think when we come together as a community, our community feels it. Our families feel it. They feel heard. They feel seen. They feel loved and hugged. Mm-hmm. and not just dismissed and marginalized. So I think overall, like Ross said, the systems, but then the impact is also what's awesome to see. All right, let's take a quick step back, Rod. Tell me about what family homelessness, tell us about what it looks like. I know I described a little bit in the intro. How How is it different from what we may think? Yeah, I think when we think about homelessness more broadly, you think about people on the streets, people in encampments. Um, that's usually the picture we capture in our head, right? Family homelessness looks quite different, where families could often be experiencing homelessness for a long period of time and be doubled up. They, they could be living with family, living with friends. They could be ho- in hotels. I mean, in our climate right now, families are trying to bounce from county to county often to find mm-hmm. affordable hotels to live in. Um, it's also, you know, people in their cars. And that's the thing that makes it invisible, right? Yeah. Because people are in their cars, you can't see that. So that's what family homelessness looks like. And we have a lot of students too. So the number of students in Metro schools has increased. They have identified as experiencing homelessness. So that's why this number is much larger than we even put a finger on because stories aren't always told. 
because of the stigma around experiencing homelessness. And the domino effect for students having to potentially, like you said, if a family has to go from county to county, there's it's virtually impossible to keep them in school and to ensure, you know, a regular rate of education for them. Yeah, I mean, the, the stability issue is, is significant, right? Um, they're having to then pick up their educational, you know, process, you know, at each school that they're going to. And then if you're, you couple that with just being cars, you know, yeah. like how do you keep up with the stuff that all young people need to keep up with? Like mm-hmm. those are stark realities that we, we've had to address. Now, Drew, you know, how do evictions, what kind, what do evictions play a major role in homelessness here in Nashville? Yes, yes. Um, part of what, what kind of we're running up against now is the eviction moratorium, which ended, mm-hmm. which allowed evictions to pick up. So we had some people maybe backlog that wasn't, that was already in the process before COVID. And then when they took that away, of course, everybody kind of went through the system. So that increased the numbers that we're trying to serve. Um, but then also the current eviction, right, because we just don't have affordable housing. We have housing. We have units available, but they're all geared towards more higher end income um, and not for the they're not affordable, even though they're available. And often the incentives are given to those who can afford it with no thought about those who can't and maybe provided some space for those who can't. So there's a couple of things going on that, ev- that cause eviction, such as not being able to afford the rent or your lease goes up by 200 percent. You know, that just changes everything. Mm. Um, and for a family who's really living paycheck to paycheck, which in Nashville, many of us are, um, it's just hard to take on any additional expense. So it's just a, it's a slippery slope that's easy to get on. This may sound obvious, but. You know, why is childhood homelessness really so serious? Well, I think if we go back to the roots, any kind of childhood trauma becomes a ripple, right? And then that gets carried on into the child's life. You just never know how that's going to show up. So not only is it just a tough way to live as a child, um, it's a tough way to model. You begin to, you begin to think this is the world. Mm. You begin to think the world's going to react that way to you. So more the psychological, the social effect that it can have on a child. Um, it's huge in ways that we don't understand as adults because we can't think like children anymore. Mm. Um, but the reality is that it's such a, to start that way, and we know how big that those early years are in our development as adults. We've seen studies for that, mm-hmm. um, that they're just the most vulnerable in our system. The, the, the stigma of being homeless is something that can stick with these children throughout the remainder of their lives. Oh, oh, absolutely. Even in, you know, we, we have a shelter and when the bus comes by and they pick them up. Um, but the kids on the bus know that they're stopping at a shelter and mm-hmm. they know that the kids that get on are the people who live there. So not only is it just that, but now they're they're marginalized at school at a young age. And again, they begin to think this is how the world is going to react to me. Mm-hmm. And they don't know it's a moment. Um, they think this is just them. Uh, so we try to help them navigate through that through our youth program. Now, Rod, this 100 day challenge is a major collaborative effort. But, you know, still in your experience, Tell me this, how have you seen nonprofits fall short? So, you know, I think one of the challenges that we experience in the nonprofit community is that we have a lot of demands on each agency to fulfill a certain set of outcomes, right? Certain things that they have to attend to when they have funding from multiple sources, right? And I think so one of the challenges is how do we keep us from being siloed, right? And I think often agencies feel like they have to optimize their part as opposed to thinking about how their part is contributing to the whole. And that's a, that's a shift from kind of programmatic thinking or conventional thinking to systems thinking. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of what this has nurtured is agencies really thinking about how, do, how does my specific role contribute to the whole and how can I maximize that part 
understanding that if we do that effectively, we could have greater impact on the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. You know, in living in other cities, I heard people refer to the nonprofit sector as the nonprofit industrial complex, kind of referring to the fact that everyone may have had similar goals, but their missions were different. Therefore, it created competition, competition for funding, competition for actual programs and things. But it seems like you all were able to kind of overcome that or eschew that, as you were just saying, you know. What were those conversations like when the idea first was generated? Yeah, so I think that it's important to understand that this this work, the 100-Day Challenge, is kind of built off of this infrastructure that we've been creating over the last four years with an initiative called the Family Collective, which is an initiative of United Way. And so we had built partnerships with agencies over a period of time. You know, we always talk about systems change. It moves at the speed of trust. Well, that's very important in this context, right? Mm -hmm. So we build trust and trusting relationships with agencies so that when we do something like this, they're walking with us, right? So that foundation is important. Uh, Safe Haven um, spent a lot of time having one-on-one conversations with folks before this was launched to really say, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is what we would like you to do. This is the role we'd like you to play. Are you on board? And that type of nurturing of positive relationships with a shared vision, I think, is is essential. Now, you know, Drew, tell me this. You know, I'm thinking about nonprofits, and they have pretty strict systems. Mm-hmm. How can nonprofits maybe benefit themselves to approach their missions differently in this way, in this form of building trust continually? How can how can nonprofits evolve so we have more initiatives like this when you all just embarked on? Yeah, I think first is that you identify where your missions align, right? You make a, you draw a circle, and then where the circles intersect is where there's opportunity to work together. And I think for this, we all kind of was working towards the same direction, towards the same goal. We may have had nuances that made our missions different, but in the end, we all wanted to end family homelessness. And I think we looked at where our agencies could connect with another agency and where that interlapped, and that perfect sweet spot is where we started to build that trust that Rod mentioned, and then we started to expand from there. Um, So I think that's what needs to continue is looking at where missions can align, where they can cross over, and then start to build from there and then see where you can expand that mission to reach a bigger goal as a community. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear more about the 100-day initiative and hear about what's next. And we'd love to hear your comments, so please send us a tweet at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. But before we go, it's a reminder, today is day four of our winter fun drive. Your support makes conversations like the one we're having today possible. So keep up that support by giving now. Go to WPLN.org, hit that Give Now button. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Days ahead of schedule, Safe Haven, in partnership with about 30 other nonprofits, has exceeded a goal of housing 100 families in just 100 days. This is Nashville senior producer Tasha A.F. Lemley talked with one woman who's moving in. So tell me what we're seeing here. So these are twin mattresses and twin frames. And so each child in the house gets their own bed. My name's Casey Wilson. I'm the housing director at Safe Haven Family Shelter. 
where are we and what are we doing today? We are at Wedgwood Storage and we are getting ready to do a move for three of our families. So we'll be providing beds for everyone in the family, so all their household members. And then for two of them, we're providing dining room tables. And then we're also providing some lamps and rugs and just some things that we have in storage just to make a little cozier. Down the roadways, Candy Huddleston gets ready for the delivery. She says she and her three kids were displaced for about a year before they connected with Safe Haven and moved into a temporary shelter. And then just three weeks later, they get their new permanent home. We have a really pretty little view. Our backyard's beautiful. I love to be able to look out the window and see my kids are playing. You know, they, they love to be out there in that little yard. And I mean, at night, get my little candles on my tub and um, I look out the window and you see the neighbor's really pretty pool and all the little leaves falling and stuff and their little backyards lit up. It's just, it just feels like home. It feels well-deserved, you know? We went through a lot and my kids went through the most, the transition and everything. It feels good to be able to give them a home again. Candy opens some new matching rugs and lamps. They're part of a move-in package, including a kitchen table and beds for everyone. Like those, those are so cute! <laughs> <laughs> those are fire! Thank you! Oh my gosh! Those are so cute! I didn't know what I was getting. So this is really like Christmas gifts, for real. I love this. She's about to turn 30. And Candy says she's grateful to hit that milestone with the support of a home. It just feels good just knowing, like, this is mine. Like, it just, it just feels good before I hit that 30 mark. If I'm able to do this right now, I can only imagine, like, what I'm about to do next because I'm feeling grounded again and stable again. So it's amazing. You know, it's really good to get to hear what your work sounds like. Even though this is really heavy work, it sounds like there are a lot of joy in this initiative. My guests are Drew Freeman with Safe Haven and Rod DeVore with director of Two Gen Initiatives at the United Way of Nashville. Thank you both for being with us. Okay, so let me ask you, Drew, how many how families have you housed in on the last 98 days, is it? Yes, yes. Well, um, I know Jen's here now. I, I, over 100. We've oh. eliminated, yeah, over 100 families. 106, 111. 111 now. 111. Every day matters. Yeah, every okay, day matters. listener, that guest you hear is Jennifer Reason. She's the COO of Safe Haven as she joins us. Jen, thank you so much for being here. You know, something that I, I heard a term that our senior producer, Tasha A.F. Lumley, told me as we were preparing for this episode is coordinated entry. Yes. Can you explain to us what that is? Yes. So coordinated entry is a concept that our whole community uses. And I'll kind of explain before coordinated entry, what a family had to do to receive services was call Safe Haven, call Catholic Charities, call Salvation Army. They had to call multiple agencies and tell their story over and over again, get put on waiting lists and just hope that one day their name got called from one of those agencies. And so that's really hard. It's traumatic for a family to have to retell their story over and over and over. Um, to agencies and staff that like may not have an opening for them 
ever. Mm. And so coordinated entry has um, kind of brought all of that into a centralized location. And so our community, families in our community can either call or um, show up at Metro Social Services and go through one assessment. And then all of our agencies who take referrals for housing support services in our community, then we all meet together on Tuesdays and we get referrals through that. And so families don't have to go through and tell their story multiple times. Um, all of our agencies don't have to have like intake workers that listen to these stories multiple times from various people. And so it just uh, really has has broken down some barriers for families. It's made the um, process more efficient and quicker for, for both the families and the service providers involved. How long have you all been practicing coordinated entry? Oh, um, at least eight, eight or nine years. Okay. Um, but it continues to evolve. It's something that you know, it is. It definitely does not look the same as it did eight or nine years ago. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly learning. We're constantly um, talking with each other, seeing what what practices um, can we can implement to improve that. We we want the best um, experience for both the families who are going through the process and the service providers who are trying to get referrals through that process. So we're, we're constantly learning and changing. It's really important that the, the, the serve people, the service providers don't feel overwhelmed and they're supported. Cause I can imagine with the great number of people attempting and reaching out, seeking services. Mm -hmm. And if you had this, this web, let's say that they had to necessarily traverse, it's helpful for the service providers. So you all can kind of show up every day, right? Yeah, it, it's a load that's taken off. I, I used to be the one at Safe Haven who answered the phone and had to kind of go through an intake with all of these families, and, and it takes a lot of time. And so now each of these agencies, our, our staff can focus on really serving the families who are referred to us, um, and and we don't have to then take that that time to be answering the phone for all these other families. They have one centralized location. And then as service providers, we kind of have one centralized location too. All right. Now there's a concept out there called Built for Zero. Rod, can you explain that for us? Sure. Yeah. So Built for Zero is it's an initiative of Community Solutions, which is a national network, um, really works with communities to help get to functional zero. Functional zero is the idea that homelessness is rare and a brief experience for families. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean we're going to get to actual zero. It just means we keep the number at a certain point where if families are experiencing homelessness, it's it's quick, they're not extended, and it's not as often. It's not re recurring, right? And so that's, that's the concept. So Built for Zero is an initiative to help communities get to functional zero. So historically, they've worked with families, they've worked with veterans in Nashville, or excuse me, historically, they work with veterans and individuals, but Nashville is the first city that Community Solutions chose to focus on families. And a lot of that was because of the infrastructure we had developed, the network, the commitment the community had to really addressing this, this challenge. What approach, how is the approach different from if you're working with individuals or veterans as compared to working with a family? Yeah, I'll start and, you know, pass to Jen to, to fill in some fill Jen's in the OG gaps, of the group. Okay. But Jen's been doing this much longer than I have. Okay. But I think part of part of the the distinction is who are the network of providers that are that are providing services, right? Families is much more comprehensive where you have an agency that might be doing a wide range of things, prevention services. They might be doing work on economic uh, mobility, so it's education and workforce development. Um, so you have a wider range of, of work that they're doing. Um, but I think the distinction is 
One, families have children. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. the that's mm-hmm. the major. Yeah, and we don't want no. Everybody wants a child to have a home, and we don't want children to experience that residual impact of ex, of experiencing homelessness. Which I was going to mention this earlier when Drew was talking about this, but I, I can't reference the research now. But I, I know there's there's significant research out there pointing to the increased likelihood of of a, a adult experiencing homelessness if they experience it as a child. Mm. So if you experience homelessness as a child, you have a greater chance of experiencing homelessness as an adult. So I think that's that's part of where I think the distinction is. Jennifer, can you speak to that? Um, yeah, just uh, when they were talking and I was out in the hall, I, w- I was thinking that, that, um, you know, we're always trying to figure out like how can what we what can we do to prevent what are some like benchmarks that we can see and it is it's really hard to predict who is going to experience homelessness even if someone is evicted it doesn't mean that that family is necessarily going to become homeless they might be able to stay with someone else for a while and kind of resolve their situation on their own but the number one uh, indicator on whether you will be homeless as an adult is if you're going to be homeless as a child mm. and i think it goes back to those um formative years, those um, times of attachment, and when you're living in such a um, just uh, uncertain time during that, it does it. It um, plays into how your brain is growing and how you react to things as an adult, too. Now, you all have come mm-hmm. together to really accomplish this great feat, and I commend you all for it, but we understand that there's still problems out there. There's still you know, the problem of homelessness. If, as long as there's one person without a home, there's work for everyone to do. Yes. What's still going wrong? Like, you know, Drew, tell me what's going wrong. What is needed from the community and the government? I think the awareness. I think that's a big part of what what this did. Um, and realizing that there are families out there that are homeless. I think mm. f- I've been in Nashville for ten years, um, and I see so much energy around encampments and around individuals, which is needed and and equally important. But when you talk about a family, I think it's important to know that one family represents three to four individuals. You know, so when we talk about 500 families being on the by name list, we're talking about 1,500 to 2,000 individuals in cars or somehow unsheltered. Um, so I think that's something for people to understand. Is not I think people think of homelessness, they think of pull yourself by your bootstraps mm. type of mentality, right? Um, but when you talk about families being homeless, it's hard to tell the child to pull yourself by your booties, right? Yeah. So I think people, if they can think of that, it may soften their heart and then open up their minds on ways they can help and support in family homelessness, which ultimately, as we've learned and what Rod and Jen mentioned, is going to have an impact on our city going forward because maybe it'll reduce the number of people who might experience this in the next 10 to 15 years because they didn't have to live so long in it as a mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. You know, what you're saying is interesting to me because a lot of, I think you ask anyone on the street, you go to Kroger and you ask all of your, everyone walking in, how do they feel about homelessness? Is it a problem that needs to be solved? And they would all agree. But if you ask them, what are they willing to do about it? You might not get so many answers. Right. Tell me, Drew, how did you come into this work? <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I, I worked at the Y for 35 years um, and was looking to make a little bit of a career change and found Safe Haven and wanted to help out. Um, and in my story of learning our family's journeys and learning their hardships and seeing them walk in downtrodden and maybe not knowing what's next and maybe they've been disappointed before and then seeing them get that key to their house and seeing them get excited and seeing their kids look hopeful mm-hmm. and seeing how conversations change because I'm with them 12 hours a day as a shelter advocate, um, that made me want to do more. 
uh, made me want to give all, get involved. And, and we have such a good group of caring people. Um, they give all they have to serve our clients in this community. I um, mean, to have a chance to lead that group was a life dream. So um, mm. it was a it was a blessing. Rod, briefly tell me, how did you come into this work? Well, I've been doing work in the Nashville community for a little over 20 years and uh, worked in youth development, grassroots, community-based programs, um, worked in family services. Um, and so I've also worked on coalition building, collaboration efforts, particularly like trying to build stronger local systems of support for individuals. And so started this opportunity at United Way was a unique convergence of all of those different experiences mm -hmm. where it was like, oh, okay, now I'm working with families that have youth. It's a two-gen approach, which is uh, really working with adults and children to get to poverty alleviation. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's that's been my story and, and really trying to live into the fact that I've been working in the nonprofit sector for so long that we see how the challenges continue to just Re get repackaged and resurfaced and how do we do work differently and that's where i've gravitated towards this work is like we gotta think about complex problems differently and so it was a unique opportunity to do that yeah see I, that for me for me that's the mantra of 2024 think about complex problems differently 2024 and beyond actually okay before we before we go jennifer tell me just what's special about these two gentlemen we're talking to <laughs> Um, well, I've, I've worked with Rod for a while, and um, I have really appreciated how he has really um, emphasized systems building for us. And so, I mean, I come from Safe Haven. I've been at Safe Haven for 15 years, and so a lot of focus um, really is on your own agency and what your own agency can do. And so what I've really enjoyed and really kept me around here at Safe Haven for the last several years is being able to work with United Way through the Family Collective and looking at that bigger picture. Um, it it made it really fun to go around and kind of meet with all the agencies before we started this 100-day challenge just to talk about, like, this is where we see you and your work. Is that where you see you and your work, where we see you fitting into this 100-day challenge? What what does that look like for you? And, and really seeing those agencies step into that. And so it's been really nice with Rod and United Way to kind of have that push and that support um, through that bigger kind of lens. Drew is um, new working with Drew, and so it's been really great. Um, he started yeah, as a shelter advocate with us for uh, about a year ago, and we we had our first kind of interactions uh, with a really difficult client situation in shelter over Christmas that we had to kind of really keep a, a close eye on and make sure um, that that family was doing well. And so just got to see Drew's heart through that time and then that's grown. And so he's been, um, it, it's fun to work with him since this is a little bit new um, environment for him and I've been in this work for a while. And so um, being able to talk to, with someone who is like eager to listen and eager to learn, uh, it's been a really great experience. Well, I wanna thank my guests, Rod DeVore, the director of Two Gen Initiatives at the United Way and Drew Freeman, the CEO of Safe Haven. Thank you both again for being on the show. Jennifer Reason is gonna stick with us through the break. And when we come back, we'll hear from a Nashvillian who secured housing from Safe Haven, and we'll learn about the collaborative efforts that helped to make it happen. You can always join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. And don't forget to give to Nashville Public Radio. It's day four of our winter fun drive. Your support helps makes this show happen. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. 
Today, we are acknowledging a pretty remarkable achievement. Safe Haven, along with other nonprofit organizations, were able to house 100 families experiencing homelessness in 100 days. Actually, it only took them 98 days. That is a really amazing feat. How did they do it? What does it take to continue efforts like this one? Who did they help? My next guest received housing from Safe Haven earlier this year before the 100-day effort. She's here to talk about her experience. I'd like to welcome Zilla to This is Nashville. Zilla, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, you know, earlier this year you got housing. Congratulations Thank to you. you and your family. Tell me, what was the process like for you? Um, a lot of phone calls, a whole lot of phone calls, uh, calling any program I could possibly call, getting rejected a lot being told that my situation isn't um, bad enough to get housed immediately, being told that Section 8 lists are just too long and it could be two years before I get housed. Mm. So it was very scary. I felt very hopeless. Um, a lot of couch hopping, a lot of just sleeping wherever I could, um, moving around as much as I could, but a lot of consistency for sure, a lot of calls, a lot of calls. You're a mom, right? Yes, how was the process for your kids? Well, I was extremely pregnant at the time. Okay. So uh, my two-year-old, he he handled it well, but it was definitely hard on him. He also was diagnosed with autism, so you could tell it was just he was angrier. Like, he, he just didn't understand. He's not old enough to understand, and... It, it was it was it was just hard. It was really hard. Definitely being extremely pregnant, like sleeping on couches and yeah. having to hop around and drive anywhere I can to find a place and figure out all this stuff. There was times when I was sitting in a parking lot here in Nashville on the phone, um, doing the applications and just bawling, crying, not knowing what's going to happen next, wanting to just give up, honestly. And it was hard, and he had to see that too, which is heartbreaking. Being, look, I, I don't know the experience, but I've seen it with my sisters and friends. Being pregnant is hard in general. Oh, my God, yeah. Let alone having to live and go through what you did. Did you have, like, feelings of isolation or that you were alone as you were trying to figure out the situation for yourself and your family? Absolutely. Even though I have friends and they were there for me emotionally, there was also only so much they could do. So it was... It was a terrible feeling, and honestly, I almost wanted to isolate myself more because I felt like a burden mm. on those around me. And it's like, I don't want to put all of my hardship onto you. I'm trying to figure it out on my own, but it got to a point where it's like, I I can't do this on my own. Yeah. So in February, you were able to get housing Yes. through Safe Haven. What's that adjustment been like for you? Oh, wow. Um it was scary. Whenever you first hear somebody say, hey, we're a shelter and, you know, we have a space for you. It's like you automatically think this huge, almost like factory building just full of beds or something. And she sent me the picture and I started crying again. And I saw that we would have our own beds and our own bathroom and our own fridge. And it was surreal. It, 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 it felt like someone was pranking me, honestly, like how can... I actually have a place that I could call at least a temporary home, and they're going to try to help me find a home. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing. Uh, wonderful. Wonderful. I'd like to welcome my next guest. Christina Osell is a regional manager for Freeman Webb. She oversees apartment com communities for the firm. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about what you do and how you all collaborate with nonprofits. 
So we are the largest management company in Nashville. Um, I personally oversee a portfolio of affordable communities. So affordable housing is my is my passion. That's that's where I'm at. Um, we partnered with Safe Haven to help families um, have homes because at Freeman Web we feel like everyone deserves a home. Mm. Can you tell me about you work with a lot of families over the years? I do. How yes. long have you been working with Freeman Web? I have been with Freeman Web for five years. Five years. Yes, I've been in the industry twenty. Okay. And um, fifteen in affordable housing, and I'll, I'll never do anything else. Why did you choose to focus on affordable <clears throat> housing? Um, being a single mother myself, I know the struggles that um, single mothers face, and it's hard. Um, it's really hard when you are choosing to pay your rent or feed your children. Mm. That's difficult. That's a difficult decision to make, and I get it. And, um, you know, we we are passionate to help these people and to help them get in homes. And that uh, I'll never leave Freeman Webb because they have the same heart as I do. They have that same passion as I do, and you don't find that a lot. So, mm. Can you share a story with me about a family that you helped out while at Freeman Webb? Oh, my goodness. So um, when I first started at Freeman Webb, I was a multi-site manager. And I had a gentleman that was moving into the property I was managing. And he had just um, received custody of his son. And, you know, he'd been he'd been couch hopping and fam, family, friends, when he received custody of his son, it, it just wasn't a doable situation for people to help him anymore. And so he found Safe Haven. Um, so we come to lease signing and uh, we're going over the lease and I look up and He's crying. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, did, are you okay? And, and he, he said, Christina, I will never be able to thank you enough. So as we all sat there in my office and cried, my assistant, I look over, she's pulling her sunglasses down because we're all bawling together. And I'm like, I'm never going to get through this lease signing because I can't stop crying. Yeah. Um, I want you to know that every day for two years that I saw that man, he hugged me and he thanked me every day that I saw him. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. That was my first move in. That was uh, with Safe Haven. And uh, it was the biggest blessing of my life and just reminded me why I am in affordable housing and why I do what I do. It's really powerful and wonderful. Yes, it's amazing. Now, now Zilli, you've experienced nonprofit work and help in this intimate, very intimate and close way. Yes. What advice, I want you to talk to the organizations now given telling us about your experience of the constant phone calls you made. What advice do you have for them? Um, Organizations out there who are trying to help families who have experienced similar things to you. Communication is key. Communication and creating relationships is key. Even if you don't have any good news, just check in. Sometimes you feel isolated. Sometimes you feel so in the dark about things and just getting a little update. Even if it's like, oh, we're still waiting. We're still, you know, trying to get this going, but we're, we're here for you. You know, if you need anything, we are here for you. Mm -hmm. That's that's the biggest one. Increased communication, therefore, mm -hmm. it increases the relationship yep. that you have with the people. Yep, and the confidence in the process. Because mm. it, it's terrifying, you know. If it was just my life, whatever. But these are my kids' lives. Yeah. So knowing that somebody has my back, is a life changer. Now, Jennifer Reason with Safe Haven is still with us. Jennifer, 
we, you, people have been hearing it during the break. WPLN, we're a nonprofit organization. We're asking for funding so we can have shows like this, have conversations and community members like the three of you all on the show. How much is continued funding important to efforts like this to help support folks like Zilla, to help collaborate with people like Christina? It's extremely important. Um, the funding not only um, you know supports the staff so that we can help families uh, find homes, move into homes, um, you know, meet people at storage units and get their mattresses moved. But um, when families move in, we we don't expect them to move into housing and then they immediately be able to pay all their bills. And so at Safe Haven, we work on a step down plan um, process. And so we will pay like 100% of a deposit and a first month's rent. And then as time goes on over the next like six to nine months, we will pay a little bit less of their rent and the family will pay a little bit more. And it just gives time for that family to adjust. It is a huge adjustment. Um, a lot of families have been unhoused for quite some time. And so just jumping into the very high rent prices that we have here in Nashville um, can can be really difficult. And if, if we don't scaffold that, um, those wraparound services around them, then they're not going to be successful in housing. But it, it does take funding to be able to offer that financial assistance to offer those wraparound services. At Safe Haven, we um, have a very large um, like youth program, and so we're helping families with school and accessing daycare, and we have an employment program and all these other things that really... Um, you know, families need housing doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And so they need all of these other um, services kind of wrapped around them so that they can maintain that housing stability. How have you seen those wraparound services benefit the folks you work with from just purely a mental and emotional standpoint? Mm -hmm. So what I've seen is a lot of families, um, we get them to the point where we can move them into housing and that's what they've come to us for. I, I keep looking at you for confirmation. Um, and, and then uh, a lot of families at that point, you know, they're kind of like, I don't know what I need next. And so, you know, our case managers are constantly talking about then, you know, not only employment and making sure their kids are in school or daycare, but also mental health care, physical health care, um, making sure they have access to mainstream benefits. So all of those all of those things that the family may not be coming to us initially for, they're coming because they have housing needs, but we wanna make sure that we have all of those other services available because we know that's what's gonna support their long-term success in housing. And even um, getting furniture, mm -hmm. like after having my home, it's like, okay, well, what do I do? Yeah. And y'all provided beds, couches, yeah. and you made that house a home. We, we spend a significant amount of money on mattresses to mm -hmm. give to families every year, like significant amount. Um, but that's really important to us because we feel like if we are going to move a family into a housing unit, we, we have to be able to provide a place for them to sleep also. We don't yeah. want them to be sleeping on the floor. And so it 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 is a lot of money, but that's really important. It's a it's a value to us at Safe Haven that we provide that, that comfort and that um, trying to make that a cozy home, not, I've got, just, not just a building. I've got just over a minute left, but Christina, I want to give you the last word. You know, some landlords out there are hesitant or reluctant to Absolutely. help families out because of, you know, some of the challenges and getting a place and renting and some of the traumas that they may have experienced. I want to give you this time to speak directly to any landlords who are listening right now. 
who are considering opening up to families but are a little hesitant. You've done this. You talk to them. So the risk is no different than renting to someone that crosses all the T's and dots all the I's, right? So like you guys were discussing earlier, the the misconception of homelessness is you think it's someone coming from a camp, but that's not the case. I mean, these are single mothers that have fallen on hard times or just families that lost jobs and couldn't, you know, get themselves back up on their feet. Um, it, there's not a risk. It's it's no different than a normal person walking off the street. The difference is, is these people have just hit a hard patch and they need help to get back to normal life. And um, I personally would be happy to speak with any landlord to share any experience that I've had with Safe Haven. Um, they offer, you know, long-term case management. They're there every step of the way. They don't just say, here you go, here's your keys. Mm-hmm. So. I want to thank you so much. That is Christina Osell. She is with Freeman Webb. She was joined by Jennifer Reason with Safe Haven and Zilla Nashvillian and mother of two. Really appreciate you all being here. Thank Thank you you so much. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced and directed by senior producer Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our board operator is Liv Lombardi. Welcome on your first day. Magnolia McKay, Elizabeth Burton, and Catherine Ceces are our multimedia producers. Mary Mancini is our logistics coordinator. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Casey Wilson, Stacey Nunley, Leigh Lindsay, Lee Lindsay, pardon me, Cameron and Cameron Atkins for helping out on the board. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>